Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Our scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment now for silent reflection. Gracious God, as we now quiet our minds and our bodies to rest, listen, receive, For so many of us, it's still so difficult to do that because our thoughts race from thing to thing, project to project, worry to worry. So many voices coming at us from outside telling us to buy more, achieve more, strive more, do more, prove yourself to the world, prove them wrong. And so many voices from within that shout at us, that whisper to us, you're not enough, you're not going to do enough, you're not going to be okay. We come to this very moment with all of that racket, and we need your voice to call us into a deeper life. We need your voice to wake us up to your grace. However we find ourselves right now believing or unbelieving, questioning, wondering if we could ever believe these things, however we approach this story right now, help us to see that you know us. You see all the beauty of our lives. You see the brokenness around us. You know it all and you love us completely. And you display that love in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. So wake us up to that great story now and help us to enter into it. Teach us by the power of the Holy Spirit in a way that our lives would be transformed and renewed and send us out to be your agents of renewal wherever we go. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So some of you know that I've been hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, and yesterday I went and knocked out another section of it with Florence's dad and brother and brother-in-law. If you know our family personally, you know them as Richard, Richie, and Derek. So we got up semi-early on a Saturday morning and went down to the southern beginning of the Pacific Crest Trail. 
Now, I've studied the Pacific Crest Trail. I've read about it. I've hiked 26 or so miles on it already. I know that it was conceived of in, in someone's mind in 1932, and it was kind of ratified in 1968 and completed in 1993. I know that it's 2,650 miles that goes from Mexico to Canada along the Pacific Crest, hence the name, the Pacific Crest Trail. But when we actually hiked down yesterday, and we, we got to the very southernmost part, we are at the border wall, and there's a monument right there. And it talks about, you know, this is the significance of it. And there's a little mailbox that says PCT sign-in. And there's a little diary there, and you can write your name and a little message, a recollection, a memory, a hope. And you open this thing up, and it's like a sacred moment where people are at this really apex moment of their life, hiking this iconic trail, and they're reflecting on what's important to them, and they're sharing their story. And then you see that there's a pen in there, and you get to share your story. See, I had studied the trail. I had walked the trail. But once I saw that it invited me to put my name in, it says, you, this whole story that you've read about is actually part of your story now. And now you are written into it. See, Christianity comes to you like that. It presents a grand narrative of the world that actually makes sense of the world. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun, not only because I can see it, but by its light I can see everything else. And Christianity comes and says, this is a beautiful and broken world. Each of us could write pages, books, volumes of beauty, of brokenness. It says, this is a good world created by a good God who's blessed it and said, it is good. I delight in all of this. And so there's creativity, there's art, there's music, there's love, there's connection. But Christianity also presents the view that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. I don't have to prove that to any of you. You could preach that sermon better than I could. It's fractured. It's broken. And into all of that mess, into all of that chaos, God steps in and says, I will make all things right. I will redeem what has been lost. I will restore what has been broken, not only out there, but right here as well. And Christianity comes to you and says, that is the grand story of the world, but that's actually your story. You are invited to write your name in that book. Actually, God does you one better. He says, I will write your name in the book because I know your name. See, we come to this story today and part of us, this is actually a challenging story to preach because for many of us, it's a familiar story. You know, we've kind of been inoculated against it. Inoculation is when you get just enough of it so that you don't get the whole thing. Right? We kind of hold it as a distance. We become familiar with it. And so the challenge for you as you hear this story might be to hear a familiar story with familiar words and themes, but let it actually sink all the way deep down into your heart and mind. Right? It's like dynamite. If you take a stick of dynamite and you set it on a boulder, you know what you get? You get an explosion. But if you take a stick of dynamite and you drill deep down into that rock and you put the same stick of dynamite in the center of the stone, you get the boulder wide open. Maybe the invitation for us as we hear this today is to let this be dynamite for our souls, to let it go deep down and actually transform everything. Now for some of you, and I love this about our church, we are setting this church up 
for people who are not used to going to church. So I realize as I preach this sermon, some of you may be familiar with the story. You've seen the Charlie Brown Christmas story. You know it from a distance, but you haven't seen it up close and let the power of it actually run you over, but run you over in a good way. I shout out to my neighbor uh, who this week came over and said, hey, Matt, you know, um, I know the story, but my, my kid asked me this week, like, what's the actual Christmas story? And I thought, I've heard it forever, but I kind of don't remember all the details. Right? So she's set up um, story time with Pastor Matt on the porch. So this, she goes, who's better to tell them than Pastor Matt? So this week, can't wait for story time with Pastor Matt, uh, Christmas edition. Shout out to all of you. So the challenge is, whether you're new to this or you've heard it many times, to pay attention and let it go deep into your heart. And here's what it is. See, almost every other religion and worldview and philosophy of life is about what you can do to have your name written in the book of life. Okay? It's about following the right path. It's about observing the right pillars. It's about saying the right incantations. It's about doing the right things. And in any case, it's what you need to do to get right with the divine. But only Christianity, and particularly in Christmas, comes and says, Look at what God has done to get through to you. That means when you're having one of your lesser moments and you're feeling down on yourself and feeling a million miles away from God and feeling alone, the next thought that the gospel brings, the next thought that Christmas brings is you're not even a millimeter away from God because he comes to you even now. Christmas simply means the creator God has become a human being so that we might become one with God. The creator God of all the world. When you go down right now, it's so fun to go to the beach because it's big surf days. It's very scary to swim in the ocean right now because it's big surf days. But one thing everyone can agree on is it's powerful. When you see the power of the ocean, um, what's today, the 20th? Tomorrow will be the closest that Jupiter and Saturn have been for 300 years and the closest they've been visibly for 500 years. Yes, I'm a nerd. I study this stuff. So... When you see the beauty of the cosmos, when you see the power of the ocean, when you see the artistry of a sunset, you go, that God is, whoever created that is creative. Whoever made that is powerful. Whoever invented that is beautiful. That God has actually become part of the creation and breathed his own life into the story once again so that we might become one with God. That's uh, what's being reflected. Uh, you have two quotes for you. This is a little bonus if you do download the worship folder. Two quotes from two very ancient theologians. The first one's the newer one. Uh, this is Garrick of Igni. He died in 1157 AD. He was meditating on this story that we just heard. He said, do you want to see the humility of God? Look in the manger and see him lying there. Surely this is our God. Seeing an infant, I wonder how this could be, the one who says, do I not fill heaven and earth? I see a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. Is this the one who's clothed in the beautiful glory of unapproachable light? Listen. He's crying. Is this the one who thunders in the heavens, making the angels lower their wings? Yes. But he has emptied himself in order to fill us you don't see anything else, when you look in the manger 
and you see that child, and you're trying to hold, as I do, the tension of the claim that the creator of the world lies in a manger, vulnerable, cold. See the character of God that would do anything to get nearer to you. Everyone knows this. If you have deep friendships, deep relationships, the best marriages, the best friendships, all know that true love is vulnerable. You can't love someone without exposing yourself to the potential for being hurt. In the manger, you see God becoming ultimately vulnerable before us to display his love. And on the cross, you will see the consummation of that vulnerability. As he not, It's not a play. It's not an act. It's not pretend. It's not for show. He actually lets the brokenness of this world come crashing down on his shoulders because he says, I see you and I know you and I'm doing something about it. So there are a, a thousand directions we could take this. In the time we have, I want to just double-click on the idea of the Messiah. This, that's how this whole scripture begins, okay? Starts with, now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. If you were part of the original Jewish audience, and all you heard was that sentence, and they said, well, write a movie based on the rest of how this would go. First of all, I know it's a little anachronistic because I just said original audience movies. You're paying attention. Thanks. Write the rest of the story. This is how the birth of the Messiah came. Well, you have to ask first, well, what's the expectation of the Messiah? What does the word Messiah mean? The word Messiah is a Hebrew word that means anointed. Anointed is what they did to kings. It's when you anointed their head with oil, you showed their royalty, their power, their prestige. Fun fact, Messiah in Hebrew, in Greek, Christ. Okay, so Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Christ is not his last name, it's his title, okay? They had all sorts of expectations for the Messiah or for the Christ. And here's how it goes. You have to go all the way back to the beginning of the story where I told you it's beautiful, it's broken, God promises to redeem the whole thing, and then God elects a people, Israel. He starts with a man named Abram, who later turns into Abraham, and he says, I will bless you, and through you, all the nations will be blessed. Okay? Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has the 12 tribes of Israel. And they go on, and they forget their original calling. I will bless you, so that all the nations will be blessed. And they forget their original calling, and the, one of the first things they do is they say, God, this is just mediocre. I think we could do better. We've heard that before in the Garden of Eden. We think we could do better. Give us a king. And God says, you don't want a king. I'm your king. And they say, no, we want a king that we can walk with and talk to and look in the eye. And God says, you know what the kings of the earth do. They will conscript your sons from your families and make them serve in the military for military conquest. They will tax you in order to pad their own treasury account. Trust me, you don't want a king. And they say, nope, we want a king. God says, have it your way. And so throughout the Old Testament, it's story of, can this king be the one to lead us back into that kind of renewal? Nope. Maybe this one will be. Nope. And the prophets, meanwhile, the great poets are, are in the mix, calling the people back to their original mandate from God. We are the people of God for the good of all the world. Quit oppressing people. Quit pushing them aside. Quit making neighbors by conquering them. Calling them back. So it's this long, tragic story of hope, of vision for the future, and never fully realized. 
And the idea, this is where the word Messiah comes into play. That the Messiah would be the true king from God. The anointed. The one who would make all things right. I wonder, and you and I might not use the word Messiah. In fact, I bet you, you don't. But all of us have a Messiah figure in our life. It might be a person that you think, if I could just be with that person, then everything would be okay. It might be a person where you're thinking, if I could just get rid of that person, everything would be okay. It might be a job or a promotion that you want to get. It might be a certain financial state. It might be a certain amount of likes or connections on LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram. It might be any sort of, any number of things. But what do you look to to say, that's what I'm hoping for? That's what's going to make all things right. I recently came across an old article that was actually written in the recession of 2008. It was written December 31st, 2008 by Daniel Shore for NPR, All Things Considered. He'd been reporting for, oh gosh, 40 years at that point already. He's covered everything. And the title of this was Grim Prospects for a New Year, right? Don't invite that guy to the New Year's party. Not fun conversation. So he's writing, and he's talking about grim prospects for the new year. You remember we were in the Great Recession, and he talks about how shopping is down, shoplifting is up. He goes, Dickens was only half right. It's not the best of times, but only the worst of times. I know some of you and many of us can write in how we feel about that right now with the swirling of everything around us. But here's what got me in that, is that Daniel Shore, writing for All Things Considered, asks the question, is there any light at, this dark, at the end of this darkening tunnel? Where is what the Greeks called the deus ex machina, the God who descends at the critical moment to sweep all our troubles away? Where is the God who comes to sweep all our troubles away? And Christmas comes to you and says, you're looking up. You should probably be looking down because he descends so that you might come up. He comes down to serve you into greatness. And that's what brings us to our next point. How did he come into this world? Did the Messiah, the King, the Anointed, the Christ, did he come through power in a palace? You already know, class, because we just heard the back of the book. No. He came through a manger. In a manger, not a palace. To an unwed teenage girl who is on the verge of being left all on her own. Do you hear how fragile the story is? I mean, if I was God and I was writing the story, I would come in a much more stable and secure fashion, probably a lot more flashy. But he comes from the bottom up. In fact, kings would normally come from a great pedigree. And on one hand, you have, he is a king from the line of David, and that matters immensely. At the same time, just before this passage we read, and I didn't read this part for you because I didn't want to put you to sleep before the sermon. That's what sermons are for. Um, it's the genealogy. Okay? If you want some good nighttime reading, read any genealogy in the Bible. But they're important if you drill into them. Because it talks about where the story has come from and where it's going. And in Jesus' genealogy, something very intriguing happens. Royal genealogies, like if you ever watched The Crown or Downton Abbey or any of, if you watched Game of Thrones, any of these kind of royalty-themed shows... It's always about your pedigree. I am son of this person who's son of that person who's son of that, daughter of that. 
And they only mention the men. I'm sorry. In a patriarchal society, they only mention the men. Except for Jesus' genealogy. 2,000 years ago, in the ancient Near East, there were genealogies that were written that included women. And it was Jesus' genealogy. So even there, you're starting to say, this story is for everybody. Everybody's an insider. I mean, that's women equality 101 2,000 years ago. But you go further and you study the names of the women that are in that genealogy. And each of them has a difficult, troubled, distressed story. Tamar, Rahab, they don't even mention Bathsheba's name. They just call her Uriah the Hittite's wife. What's the point? When Jesus comes into the story, when the Messiah comes on the scene, he doesn't roll out the royal scroll to tell you how good he is and how bad you are. He comes through weakness. He comes through brokenness. The claim that God became a human being so God actually knows what it's like to be cold, lonely, afraid, left out, made fun of, he actually knows what it's like to experience life like you do. A God who identifies with you and doesn't say, yuck. Doesn't say, you know, I see it's not going very well for you right now, but let's be honest. You made a bunch of bad choices as well. You've made your bed. Now it's time to lie in it. I'm sorry, you're on your own. He says, I will come all the way to you right now. Is that how you consider God's character toward you? The author of Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, who wrote to this young church in Philippi, he talks about it by saying, Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be exploited or grasped at, but rather he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself even to the point of death, even on a cross. A God who fully comes down. That's the character of God at the core. And yes, he does have the royal pedigree. As it says, the angel of the Lord comes to Joseph and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. It's a both and. But that's exactly what you'd expect when the creator of the world becomes human. That there's all power and glory and majesty and pedigree, and yet he doesn't use any of it except for to come to you, to serve you, to care for you, to forgive you, to renew you. The meaning of the Messiah is the king who would truly come and make all things right, but how he comes is a shocking surprise. He comes to all. He comes from the bottom up. And let's just consider for a moment what Jesus came to do, what the Messiah came to do based on this scripture. Now, there are three aspects I'd like to point out here. And it's kind of like when you go to the jeweler and they take out the diamond and they put it with the little black velvet background and they, they turn the diamond and they want you to see the different facets of it, right? And so for some of these, for, for some of you, some of these will be remedial and repeat and some of these might be new to you. But I want you again to let this be dynamite that goes deep into the heart. Can, and can actually transform. What did he come to do? Well, our first clue comes in verse 21, when the angel says, She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people 
from their sins. So someone goes, yeah, 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 Christianity, I'm a bad sinner, I've done all these things wrong, I need God to forgive me, and so God saves my sins. And I would say, that might be a little um, cavalier about it, and it might be a little oversimplified, but yeah. Yeah. That when you look in the mirror, when when you look at your news feed and you say, the world's not the way it's supposed to be out there, but then when you look in the mirror and you go, things aren't the way they're supposed to be in here. God looks at you and says, I know that. That's actually the, the ancient translation of the word sin, right? Sin is not merely just the bad things you've done wrong. Like all the things that Santa has on the list of the naughty kids. Like that's not sin. Sin goes back to this ancient archery term. I won't bore you for too long. But it, hamartia, it simply means to miss the mark. If I'm trying to become an archer with a bow and arrow and I'm shooting for the bullseye and I missed it, they'd say, you sinned. (laughs) They're not making a a moral, ethical statement about me. They're just saying, you didn't hit the target. He came to forgive you for all the ways you didn't hit the target. All the damage you've done to yourself and all the damage you've done to others. Now, it's nothing less than the forgiveness of sins, but it is a whole lot more. Because the passage goes on to say, first of all, let's just say this. When you feel, and as a pastor, I hear this, when you feel like you have crossed the point of no return, when you feel like you have sinned away your day of grace, that you've gone too far, and this is too many times, I want you to hear what Jesus' original title as Messiah led to. Why did he come? To save you when you miss the mark. He's probably closer to you than ever waiting for you to turn and simply receive. And so if that's you for any reason, why not allow him in? Maybe this Christmas week, this fourth week of Advent, is time for you to say, you can come into every aspect of my life. I trust you. And the thing about that is, you can say that today, you're going to need to say it again by sunset, and then tomorrow when you wake up, and then tomorrow again, Because we easily develop spiritual amnesia. We forget about the great forgiveness that he gives. Why did he come? To rescue you when you missed the mark. But he also came not just for the individual. He cares about you individually. He knows your name. He also came communally. Did he come to save you? Yes. And more. It says he will save the entire world. His name is Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Elsewhere it says he, he was in John chapter 1. He is the light that comes into the world to enlighten all people. So it's about you. It's about a whole lot more than just you. And this goes back to what I told you in the big story. A good God who created a good world. It's gone wrong. They want a king. God says, you don't want a king. They do want a king. Things get even worse. The prophets say, come back. They're waiting for the Messiah to come. Remember Israel's original calling. I will bless you. Through you, all the nations will be blessed. And now Jesus comes to fulfill that original covenant. He is the one who is truly blessed, who divests himself of all authority so that the whole world might be renewed. He is true Israel. He's the one true Israelite. He's the one who's faithful on our behalf. In other words, and this might be a little oversimplified, but Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, has rescued and renewed you when you, hit, when you missed the mark. And 
he offers you his perfect obedience in your place. And so it's not your track record or your ability to pull yourself up by your bootstraps or get all the things together that makes you right with God. It's all that he has done on your behalf. And when you see that, when you receive that, when you accept how loved you are, then it offers you an entirely new freedom to go forward in joy and obedience. See, we don't obey in order to be rescued. We obey because we're rescued and we're grateful and we're joyful. Jesus is the only one that when you give your life to him, you don't lose your life, you truly find it. And when you fail him and mess up, he forgives you. You actually find out who you were created to become. Individual, communal, and I would say, to, to go as wide as we can, cosmic renewal. Because part of the theme of what the Messiah would bring is this ancient Hebrew word, shalom, which is often translated as peace. It means nothing less than the absence of conflict, peace, but it means a whole lot more. Shalom is a picture of what we said in the very beginning of the service when we lit these candles. That swords and weapons of war would be made into instruments of feasting. That those who are at each other's throats are actually at each other's bedside. There's a whole vision of the future where we are reunited with God, reconnected with each other, and then naturally redirected outward to reflect that light into this world. And that's what Christmas is about. Jesus comes to you. As one theologian said, God became one of us so that we might become one with God. But I want you to pay attention to something. I love it when you, know, someone, you come to a new city and they go, you only have a day in town, make sure you don't miss these two things, right? This Christmas, any scripture you hear, any story of Jesus' birth you hear, notice how people respond. Whether it's Mary, or Joseph, or Simeon, or the shepherds, or the Magi, they receive the light, but they go outward with that light into the world. As they do, the world is transformed, but as they do, they are transformed as well. May the light of Christ this week and every week brightly shine in your heart and your mind and your life. And as you go forward, may you be that light wherever you go. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this moment and for this week. Thank you for giving us time this morning to slow down and reflect on what it means that you come to us as the light that shines in the darkness, as the Messiah, the Savior, the Anointed, who doesn't come from the top down using your power to flex or crush or condemn, but rather you use your power to breathe new life, to restore, to meet us right where we are. And so do that now, we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would meet us right where we are. Open our eyes to your grace and help us to courageously take steps to say yes to you. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.